welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Francisco Kuhar. Dr. Kuhar is a mycologist specialized in the fungal diversity of gastroid and ectomycorrhizal fungi and biotechnological applications of fungal enzymes. He has a special interest in the evolutionary biology of sequestrate forms of fungi. Dr. Kuhar is an associate researcher at Conocet in the Instituto Multidisciplinario de Biologia Vegetal. He is curator of fungi at the Cord Herbarium and one of the leaders of Enemy Labs, helping to pioneer a new fungi-based product platform. Uh, Francisco, thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here, and I'm really happy to, to, yeah, to, to have this chance to, to talk about what we do. Well, your body of work, as we were talking about before the show, is varied. You've touched on so many different parts of working with mushrooms and fungi. So there's a lot to talk about. So I'm definitely excited to kind of hone in on a couple parts of your research. But before we get into that, tell us that origin story, how you got into the life sciences uh, in Argentina, what introduced you to fungi and mushrooms, you know, a little bit of, of that arc or that story. Well, the Truth is, I I am interested in many things. As you can as you can see in my work, it's like I, I don't really have a focus. I when I get interest, interested in something, I just do it. So it was tough to choose a, a career because yeah, I, I I was also interested in psychology in literature, but I went to a school uh, where we had a lot of subjects on botany, on, on microbiology, uh, on chemistry. So I fell in love with the life sciences and I had the chance to, to participate in those. Uh, the, the, there was a competition, the Biological Olympiads, and I, I traveled to, to Germany and I got a medal there. So I said, well, this is what I can do better than other things. So, yeah, I chose biology as a career. But later during the career, I changed to literature for some reason. And I was also interested in linguistics. It was crazy. I ended up uh, finishing the career of biology, uh, but yeah, uh, I think uh, there are some uh, some things I've learned. Uh, I was thinking today about the the, the origin of, of the vocation, which is difficult to to trace back. But I remember uh, at some point reading uh, uh, something on, on psychology. I was studying German at that point, and I was reading a book uh, by Sigmund Freud. Uh, we, in Argentina, we still read that. <laughs> and there was a, a quote, there was a sentence, uh, I don't remember well, but it was something like talking about the, the, the dreams, uh, analyzing dreams or something like that. Uh, he said, he wrote something like, you can find... Finally, at the end, you can find the desire growing like the like the fruiting body from like the mushroom from a mycelium. And he said, "No way!" Like, yeah, it was crazy. Something like uh, you find uh, mycelium is something 
without uh, a definite form. And uh, at some point, you get the fruiting body with the full shape and form. And yeah, that was amazing. And later, when I finished my career on biology and I started my PhD, I started culturing uh, mycelia, mostly Ganoderma, because I was working with Reishi for my PhD. And when I when I saw the fruiting bodies coming from the mycelium, I remember that, and I said, "Okay, this is this is what I want to do with my life." I found my 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 true desire there, like Sigmund Freud said. That's a beautiful story of being led there by Sigmund Freud, and to think big then about your career. Tell us maybe what the Patagonia is and how you got introduced to start working in that region because this you know in your varied research and papers that's one of the big themes is is hongos in, in patagonia well the the thing was uh, i was finishing my my phd and it was mostly biotechnology because i was producing enzymes with ganoderma and i started to realize that I didn't uh, know anything about uh, diversity. I saw that there were, they, there were so, so many differences in the enzymes from different strains. And I said, okay, we are all working with the same species and a huge amount of species, species uh, all over the world that we are not working with. Uh, and I started to look for places in Argentina to continue my career and I said, okay, Patagonia is like a, a whole new world of things that we can still discover and it's a great place to learn about uh, taxonomy uh, diversity. And the good thing is this belongs to the Gondwanan realm. So this is connected with Australia, with New Zealand, because those places were a part of Gondwana in the past, like yeah, many million years, many millions years uh, before. So uh, I knew that there were many new things there that were very different from the things that you can find in in the northern hemisphere. So I said, okay, let's let's go for this because I will find interesting things, and I found interesting things, but also very interesting people, and that was incredible. But the, the thing about, about Patagonia is that you have those amazing forests that look like the Lord of the Rings, and there is only one genus of mycorrhizal trees, the genus Notophagos, and this is very different from the Northern Hemisphere. And you have a huge amount of, of, of species associated with those trees, and, and there are things that, for example... When we, well, we, we, we will talk about a sequestrate or hypogeous fungi later, but fungal genera that don't have uh, or, or have uh, only a few hypogeous species in the northern hemisphere have a lot of sequestrate or hypogeous species in Patagonia. And we don't know why, why it, they behave so, so different. Uh, so many Cortinarius russulas. We also described a, a, a hypogeous amanita, and that was crazy because there are two amanitas or three, and one of them is a truffle. And that doesn't happen in Europe or in North America, or it is very rare. So something happens there, and we don't know what. 
Well, and I want to talk about what you think about convergent evolution as adaptation of these different species, and we'll we'll definitely get into that. But it sounds like in your work, what you found, I know generally with ectomycorrhizal mushrooms, we tend to think of an almost reverse to the general rule of biodiversity. As you approach the equator, the variation of species tends to get lower, or at least that's kind of the, the common impression that I've been left with. But, you know, folks, after speaking with you and your experience there with this wild diversity of certain ectomycorrhizal species, or at least different hypogeus forms in the Patagonia, it makes me think of Terry Henkel's work in Guyana of finding these monodominant Dysimbi forests. And he had a similar story where this was, you know, a story of Gondwana, the biogeography of, you know, these matching land masses. And he was so shocked to find, again, a very high diversity of ectomycorrhizal fungi. So would you characterize that similarly, that this is a monodominant forest structure that somehow leads to, you know, the opposite of what we'd expect when it comes to echo, ectomycorrhizal diversity? Yeah, actually, I think it's something similar. And, and I've been working in Patagonia together with uh, Matt Smith, who worked also in Guyana with Eric Henkel. And those are similar situations. Yeah, also the, the, the monodominant forests. Uh, the diversity is uh, is huge for for one single species or or or, or uh, one single genus of trees in, in many forests, and uh, but but we have to think I think uh, about the the history the the geological history because. Uh, in Patagonia, there are some papers that show that in the past we have also eucalyptus forests there, mm. and you find something similar in in Australia, where you have eucalyptus uh, forests, but also nodophagus forests, and there are uh, you see the phylogenies, and you can see that there are uh, th that species jump or many taxa jump from eucalyptus to notophagus or vice versa. Uh, so I think we have to think about the past. Uh, Guyana is also a very, is, a, is an ancient uh, realm because it's a part of the South American continent that, that hasn't, uh, that, that wasn't underwater uh, for many, many million years, million years. And, and so probably it has to, it is related to, to to the history, but I'm not sure about, uh, I don't have a, a, a good answer for that. Yeah, yeah, I, I just couldn't help but see some of the similarities there. And it's always interesting thinking of these biogeographical stories uh, and finding support for things like Gondwana with where these organisms are spaced. It, it's fascinating to look through time like that. Now with your work in the Patagonia, again, I read through your research papers, I mean, there's a wide variety of topics, including like a general characterization of the mushrooms of the Patagonia. So if you could, I mean, what were some of the questions you were seeking to answer about that Patagonia region? You know, when you went up there, what were some of the questions that you were trying to answer? If it was, you know, biodiversity, you just wanted to characterize biodiversity. If there's anything more specific, uh, as best you can summarize. I think my my first question was always uh, the origin of of sequestrate uh, mushrooms and, and also uh, convergent evolution. It's it's 
uh, it was a hard work, but I think I still don't have the answers. And we are starting to get some conclusions many years later. So we are writing some papers uh, about that, uh, about the yeah the conclusions we have on 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 this on convergent evolution because this is very uh, complex for me and very interesting. But there were also some questions from the group. I worked there with, with Eduardo Noura, with Camille Tronk, with Juliana, of course, and learning with them about the this connection, this one and connection. That was amazing because when you get mushrooms that you you cannot identify and you make DNA, for example, the first thing, or even when you get DNA from soil, the first thing thing you find when you compare that with uh, in GeneBank with, with the database is the most similar things are in New Zealand or in Australia. And this is an incredible experience. It's, it is always the same. You blast something in GeneBank and you get the closest relative in, in Australia. And then you say, okay, the, the story I, I was told at school, it was true. And I can see that. And I can see millions of years. I can can see how the continents uh, moved. And I can see that in the DNA. This is incredible for me. That was amazing. Uh, but also, uh, there are other works from the group, from the same research group. Uh, for example, Marcos Cayafa found uh, those birds that transport, that, that eat the truffles. And... Unlike Europe or North America, the, the theory was always that, that uh, mice or rodents or, or yeah, small mammals were responsible for, for the evolution of, of sequestrate fungi. But he found that birds in Patagonia are really important. Somehow they confuse uh, truffles, red truffles with red fruits from, yeah, that are in the soil, on the soil. And some of the reasons why they evolved towards uh, hypotious habits. And this is amazing too. That is fascinating work. Uh, and I just started piecing together some of the names that you were throwing out of scientists you were working with. And I mean, this is really kind of a dream team yeah, research group. Uh, there was there is a word I didn't want to skip over there to make sure I'm understanding and hearing it correctly. Were you saying sequestrate and and what does that word mean? Just so I know the what we're talking about. Okay, yeah, this is we have many problems with that word in uh, when we write papers because it's it is confusing. When we talk about uh, the old gasteromycetes, truffle-like fungi, all fungi that uh, that are enclosed that have a gliba that don't have a hymenium exposed to the air, uh, we call them sequestrate. Because if you talk about hypogeus, you are talking about something underground. Uh, but you also have uh, gasteroid or, or secotioid fungi, which are enclosed, but are not producing a, a and the fruiting bodies underground, like geastrum, uh, lycoperdum, puffballs in general. So sequestrate is a concept that uh, includes all of them. That's a fantastic word to be 
to add to the vocabulary. Uh, sequestrate just meaning those fung fungi that form fruit bodies but enclose their spores. Uh, so thank you for for clarifying and giving that that language to work with. Here you are teaching me English. You were worried about it, uh, and. You know, just because I love being taken on these journeys as best we can, what what is the Patagonia like? I mean, when you go there, what what is the environment like? How do you navigate these trips? Uh, you, you know, hopefully one day in my dreams I would go there for field research. But but as best we can, take us on a vicarious trip there. Yeah, you are invited to go there whenever you want. Uh, Juliana is there, and I hope I can make some trip in the future. I, I'm in Europe now, but I hope I come back. Uh, actually, uh, next month I will be in Patagonia, and I'm very happy about that. But the thing, uh, the, the the landscapes are amazing. The distances are huge, and uh, there is a. Uh, it's very similar to those landscapes in the Lord of the Rings because I think the movie was made in New Zealand, in also in Lord of Ego's forests. So mm. it, it is like magic and. For example, you have a, a, a huge gradient of, of, of rain, of precipitations. So in the Chilean side, it rains almost every day. And the Argentinian side goes drier and it ends up in, in like a desert in the steppe, the Patagonian steppe. And you can see that in the, in the, in the plants, in the mushrooms, in the animals. It's like, this is crazy. Also, the, the, the distances, the, the huge distances, the, the mountains, and the, the fact that you don't see, you travel like uh, many hours and you don't see anything. I'm in Europe now, and in Europe, there's no way you can walk around or travel without seeing houses. And it was magical to, to be there. Uh, yeah, without it, it is also scary because uh, you think if, if you get lost or you have a problem with your car, the ways they were very complicated, and sometimes the cars, yeah, the truck gets stuck, and you if you don't find a way to to solve it, you will sleep there for many days. So this is crazy. Oh. It's amazing. So it. Definitely sounds like an adventure. Uh, I mean, the dangers of an adventure, but also you could get lost in a forest like the Lord of the Rings and find amazing fungi. And just, did you guys identify, I'm sure there are loads, I probably should have looked at this before the episode, but did you guys identify endemic uh, fungus to that area, whether it be a mushroom, whether it be something in the soil? I know we have that connection to Australia, but have we found any mushrooms or or fungi endemic to just patagonia or maybe the surrounding steppe regions you know actually the uh, most of the mycorrhizal species in patagonia are endemic you don't find them elsewhere incredible this is incredible and this is why we still need to describe many things but we, we in other other groups that are not, not mycorrhizal when you look for puffballs like, like Licoperdon or Bovista, the species are shared with other places, with other continents, or the same thing for some uh, saprotrophic species, species that don't need trees. Uh, 
but the species associated with notophagus are uh, very, yeah, are they, they are endemic, they are restricted to Patagonia. And also, maybe you know, uh, you've seen these uh, uh, ascomai seeds, the Liao Liao, the genus Citaria, they grow on the, they are parasitic on the trunks of the trees. They are like yellow apples and they are yes. also restricted to, uh, of course, also to Australia, but uh, the species are restricted to each continent, for example, Patagonia. An incredible story of biodiversity. I mean, over that time, the separation of Gondwana, now you have distinct speciation of these very unique genera and species that's absolutely yeah. fascinating yeah. And you can if you think that the species of trees are also different from the the ones that you find in australia or new zealand uh, it is because the there is enough time the gondwana connection was uh, interrupted i think uh, 55 million years ago and that was enough for trees to speciate and also for mycorrhizal mushrooms. Well, and it sounds like there must be loads of undiscovered biodiversity potentially. In your mind, how much is there left to be explored? And, you know, again, just from your experience and perspective, what are the research efforts going on now there in Patagonia? I mean, has this spawned a ton of more interest and research into this area? Yeah, you know, uh, the, there is uh, there were many mycologists in history that went to Patagonia and they studied in depth the funga uh, there. And there are many works that are amazing. And the thing is, they describe things before the molecular era. And, for example, Horak and Moser and also Spegazzini and also Roland Taxter, they described many things, but and they tried to identify them sometimes with European names or North American names because they read the, the all the, the papers and books from the Northern Hemisphere. But now we are finding that with DNA and phylogenies that most species are new and are restricted there. So there is a lot of work. We are very happy that, that we have those, those descriptions and those collections and we can compare. We have types that are well preserved, but now we have to do the, yeah, to separate them and to see what is different uh, using modern species concepts. But I think you can find like, yeah, I think, it, it, for example, in the genus Cortinarius, more than half of the species need to be described. I was going to ask about what are the names of some of these amazing endemic species, but we might not even have a name yet. No, the, well, there are tons of Cortinarius. There are many things that will be new genera. Surprisingly, uh, the Russulalis are have just a few species, so this is different from the northern hemisphere. But there are, yeah, there are many things that we don't have a name uh, for them. Uh, there are things, crazy things that we are studying right now. The Paxiloid uh, species, like like the Paxillus in North America, in, in northern in the northern hemisphere, but they are related 
to some uh, crust fungi to the serpula and uh, they form fruiting bodies in the same genus you have uh, epigeus uh, fungal species but you also have truffles and you have two species that look like uh, morels they look like yeah this is a different uh, evolutionary process where the 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 pileus it gets reduced and they expose the pores like towards outside and they look like morels with big pores and things like that so this is crazy and we still don't know which name they will get uh, or yeah we still are looking for dna of different genes to to get a good phylogeny when you think about those or early explorers and i love that idea that there are tomes of knowledge from the time when explorers before we had modern technology were really looking at these and probably amazed by these fungi but man without genetic tools it would be impossible to have those kind of insights that are blowing our mind now that how is that you know, the same genera or even the same species with such a different morphology and that without genetics, I mean, how could you ever tell those poor early explorers the macroscopic features were going to fool you every time? This is crazy and I admire, I admire those people so much because they did, they actually did a, a very good job without DNA, even without electronic micro microscopy. Uh, for example, there is uh, there is there are descriptions of Zinger where he describes uh, some spores of the scolia, and he noticed that there was a protruding thing in the apex in the spore, and he knew that 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 part of the spore was protruding through a like a, a hole like a pore. And he said, this is a germ pore, but we cannot see it because it has something coming out. So if they have a, a germ pore, considering the rest of the characters, this must belong to the Volbitiaceae. So there are other things, including truffles, that must belong there. He realized that with a microscope, and we needed DNA to confirm that. We, we, we wrote a, a paper on that, on the scolia, but he knew that just by seeing this spore. And this is incredible. I, I think many of the mycologists today, of course, I include me because I wouldn't be able to, to do such a, a discovery without DNA. I mean, masters of observation, clearly. I mean, it's, it's amazing to, to think about that. Well, and, you know, we've talked about then sequestrate fungi as one group and the other part of your work that has the theme throughout it is this work with hypogeus fungi which now we're defining as not only a closed structure that contains the spores within it but also being underground so what led you down the track of exploring these different species that exhibit these hypogeus characteristics i mean what what got you interested in hypogeus fungi well, the, the true story is that I was uh, working in my PhD and it was very difficult for me to, to focus, as always, and to write papers. <laughs> and, I, 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 and my advisor at that time told me, uh, okay, you have to choose something that is 
really interesting for you and you write something on that. If it's not your main uh, topic of your dissertation, it doesn't matter. You have to write something. And I was uh, in the lab and there, there were some boxes from the herbarium and they had uh, some collections of geastrum and other uh, gastroid fungi. And I was in love. I, I fell in love with them. So I started writing uh, yeah, on, on sequestrate, on, on, on gastroid path pulse. There were, there were simple papers on new records, but I, I, I found it amazing. And I started to read about that. And there is this paper called The Secotioid Syndrome by uh, Harry Pierce. And he said something that changed my mind, that blew my mind, actually. Uh, he talked about uh, pedomorphosis. And that is the he believed that sequestrate species, enclosed species, are like, uh, you know, axolotls, which are those salamanders that evolve towards larval forms. They, they are able to reproduce without reaching maturity. So they preserve, uh, uh, how do you say, gills and... This is a, a, a kind of evolution towards larval forms that is called a pedomorphosis, pedomorphosis. So Harry Pierce yeah, thought sequestrate or gastroid fungi are uh, pedomorphic uh, fungi. They retain larval forms. They are like the, like the eggs of the, yeah, of normal fungi or of normal fruiting bodies that are able to reproduce and to produce mature spores without ever opening. And I found that amazing. So when I, I, I went to Patagonia and found that there are so many of those species, uh, that was crazy. And I started to think about that. And after many, many years and, and many papers on, on sequestrate fungi, we are finally writing something on this kind of evolution because I find it, I think this is something we, we lost because nobody's talking about that, but that would explain many, many things. There's so much to unpack there. And I guess just to clarify, when we think about different genera that have developed um, sequestrate or hypogeus or gastroid forms. And I love that, this kind of pedomorphosis, pedomorphosis. Yeah, this pedomorphosis where they're just skipping kind of these stages of maturity to reproduce faster. Of course, biologically, that's so efficient. So we exactly. don't even have to develop and now we can reproduce. But do we find that even within certain fungal species at the species level, they can exhibit either a traditional fruiting body with gills or hydum exposed to the air, and then they'll also have a morphology where they are gastroid, or do they? is that kind of a speciation uh, when they start adapting that form that uh, forms a distinct species within the genera? Well, we know at least of three examples one is uh, in the scolia, the scolia tenuipes. They found uh, 
sequestrate uh, fruiting bodies, hypogeous fruiting bodies actually, and uh, epigeous normal fruiting bodies in the same species. And there are, there are uh, examples in Aenocibi and also I think in Entoloma. So uh, we still need to, to, to compare many of the things that, that we find in Patagonia, but maybe there are more examples out there. And you just have to wonder, I mean, is this strictly the facultative or adaptative capacities of each individual kicking in where that species has a latent ability to change morphology if environmental conditions dictate? Uh, and, and I guess that brings us right to that big question, the big evolutionary question of are these morphological abilities, this ability to go gastroid or go hypogeus, where did this come from? Is this convergent evolution? Is this strictly adaptative? What are your thoughts around this? Well, first of all, the, this observation of the that maybe they are they can switch within species. This is interesting because this also that also happens with salamanders. There are many salamanders that can uh, they some somehow they decide to avoid maturing and they remain where they are. And this, right. uh, there is a, a, an amazing book on evolution uh, called uh, Morphogeny and Phylogeny by Stephen Jay Gold. Uh, he, he has so many ideas about that. And he said probably they are, in the case of the salamanders, they are trying to... I mean, if the environment outside is too crowded, there is too much competition, maybe they are trying to remain underwater because there is a, a, a new environment for their adults. So they make adults that can, that, that can breathe underwater like the larvae. So right. We are, we are, I think this will be published in two or three months because the paper is already accepted. But we discussed that probably there are uh, species that when we, when they can avoid maturing, they get uh, arrested in their development, they are closer to the roots. So in the case of mycorrhizal uh, species, and you know that myco, uh, uh, hypogeous fungi are like many of them are micro, most of them are mycorrhizal. So this is one of the things, maybe, maybe they are avoiding uh, getting, uh, making fruiting bodies too far away from the roots. This is difficult to test, but it is really interesting. And, and the second thing about that is, there is something that uh, Stephen J. Gold criticizes about the the evolution of the evolutionary theory he says he of course he believes in 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 evolution in in adaptation but he said we are uh, too obsessed with adaptation and we say we think that the morphology is the result only of adaptation so if you think uh, in an adaptive way, in an adaptive way, you would think species are selected by the environment or by many phenomena, animal, animals consuming them, 
and they slowly evolve towards uh, the, the morphologies that are selected. But when you see the papers uh, from the 80s, for example, they find that they evolve too fast. If you see the relationship in the phylogenies, they are too close. When you see a taxerogaster and a normal cortinarius, or you see a suilius and a rhizopogon, they are too closely related. They are too similar, so there is no time for adaptation, for a slow adaptation process. So if you think on pedomorphosis, retaining this larval stage is a much easier way to get this morphology because you already have that in your DNA. You only have to, to get arrested in your development. This is much easier than millions of years of selection to reach this morphology. And this is something I find amazing, and this is why, why we are writing this, this paper. A fascinating concept, and it really contextualizes that pedomorphosis, that this is another explanation for how you get this mutation to be sequestrate within the same genera or even within the same species, is it's not a process of various environmental pressures over, you know, thousands of generations, it's somehow, and I guess that that's kind of the big question is how do we know whether or not a fungus can trigger a pedomorphic kind of adaptation? Is this a latent capacity of all fungi potentially? Are there key markers that let us know what types of fungi have kind of what I'm going to call a pedomorphogenic ripcord to say, oh, this is too constrained. We're just going to develop this sequestrate type body to help us survive and not have to go up there and compete with limited space or resources or whatever it is. Um, I guess, do we have any answers like that of how we can explain that pedomorphosis? Because I think that's an amazing insight. And yes, it would explain why you see this popping up in so many places. You know, we didn't have necessarily time for that to evolve so many separate times. Um, but do we have any in insights as to why that pedomorphogenesis happens in certain genera or certain species? Well, we really don't know, but we have some ideas and some clues because, of course, we think that this is something that happens uh, randomly. And, of course, this is selected by, by many pressures. If, if they don't get selected, they disappear. We only say that right. it's not a, a slow evolutionary change it's something that happens at one in one maybe in one or two generations probably and we have some uh, there are some very old uh, german papers on for example uh of, of people uh, growing mushrooms uh, producing uh, agaricus how do you say uh, champignons agaricus. they find that some strains, when they get too old, they start producing sequestrate fruiting bodies, enclosed fruiting bodies. And there are some... Uh, the other day I was talking with a friend of mine that is, uh, is culturing uh, dung fungi, and he told me the same. When, they, when the mycelia get too old, sometimes I, I get enclosed fruiting bodies. This is something that is not difficult. Pedomorphosis is not difficult. You can imagine of 
For example, if the if the veil, if the hyphae uh, enclosing the 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 egg or the yeah, uh, they get to to I don't know. They they are too thick. For example, this change probably can make the the species cannot open any longer. But but this is something that many mushroom people culturing mushrooms they, they know that sometimes that happens as an accident probably as a mutation but probably nature can make something more interesting with that well and it does make sense to find that in a especially commercial cultivation environment where you're switching hyphae or mycelium masses between many different substrates you know whether that be different grains and each time there's potential for mutation to enter the scene so that would be a perfect breeding ground for this exactly. uh, pedomorphogenic mutation to to and it just makes you wonder too you know there's the famous aborted entoloma that is the the shrimp mushroom that people love to forage and you wonder well maybe that was a mutation that happened in another entoloma species that eventually became, and it wasn't necessarily adaptive, it just happened and survived. That's the other thing, you know, to think about when we think about these evolutionary quote-unquote pressures, if that mutation happens and you get a sequestrate fruit body, it's not necessarily that it has to even outcompete the, the uh, standard fruiting body, it just has to survive. Exactly, and if they, 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 they find another niche for for reproduction because they cannot release the spores they are not competent they, they are finding a new niche and this is some of the of the things stephen j gold said this is a way to find another niche another way to reproduce uh, because probably one way of reproduction is too crowded so you need to find something different of course you find it uh, randomly but right. if it holds if if it works you get it yeah yeah it, it wouldn't necessarily mean that it you know outcompeted the form that it came from and i guess a, a neophyte question to the world of hypogeus fungi but when we think about some of the edible tuber species or like rhizopogon some of these very well-known hypogeus species are we able to tell phylogenetically anything about where this pedamorphosis may have entered the scene i guess what i what I'm trying to figure out is can we figure out where for for something like a truffle or a tuber, can we find its cousin or or brother sister fruit body that didn't adopt this hypogeus form? Is anything like that possible? Yes, it is, and, and it's really interesting because the cases you, you said, for example, Rhizopogon, they are so closely related with Tuilius, they are very very closely related rhizopogon i mean uh okay. and there is a paper on that by uh, burn burns where they they actually say they are too closely related to be true it's like incredible this is the fa first paper where they notice that this happened too fast uh to to be as low adaptation and what were the two species again rhizopogon and i, I didn't hear that one suilius suilius okay yeah, yeah yeah of course of course and yeah, and they, they are they, when you see the mycorrhizae, they are really similar too. Uh, there are structures that make you think they are very uh, similar. But you 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 said also tuber, for example. And I don't know much about uh, ascomycetes, 
but there is a, a cap fungi in Patagonia, uh, Notoyafnea, uh, described many years ago by, uh, by an Argentinian mycologist, and the team uh, of Matt Smith, also working with Don Fister, which was also in the group, they found that they are one of the closest relatives to the true truffles, to, to tuber. And you can see this is a, is, a, is a cap, which is really interesting because it grows underground and it gets open like a cap, but it remains almost underground. It's kind of, it's something like in the middle between a cap fungus and, and a, a truffle. They are amazing and they are really close, closely related and they are in a basal position in the phylogeny. They are like primitive tubers. That's absolutely mind blowing. That not yeah. that we're we're able to find those analogs to these hypogeus fungi that we know and love. Now, where does smell enter this? Because I often think of that smell component as incentivizing mammals to find it. To me, that kind of lends itself to an adaptive capacity, unless you know it had a mutation to do this petamorphic, this petamorphic sequestered fruit body, and then happened to evolve a scent, or maybe that part, the scent, was adapted. Do we have any theories around that? We don't have any theories, but I think that uh, I can't avoid there an adaptive uh, explanation. Uh, and of course, this can happen. There are many things that need to, to evolve later. Uh, also, right. the form of the spores. When you see the spores of sequestrate species, they are different. They are uh, more uh, symmetrical or, or globose, and the walls are thicker. So I think there is a, a place for adaptation, but we don't need to think about the whole thing, uh, about the whole morphology as an adaptive process. We wrote a paper also, for example, I, I'm really interested in, in convergent evolution, and we wrote a paper on polypores or, or ephylophoroid uh, mushrooms, we found, you know, uh, Alan Turing, the father of of intelligence of artificial the Turing test. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He was a mathematician, and he made uh, he made so many things. But he wrote uh, a paper in the fifties, I think it was on. Yeah, it was nineteen fifty two. He wrote a paper because he was concerned on how uniform cell living organisms produce different tissues. And he mm. found, uh, he produced some, a set of equations uh, explaining how very small variations in concentration can produce very different patterns when the cell divides in tissues. So the thing is, what he found was uh, studied by uh, zoologists, physicians, and many of the morphologies of the, of, of, for example, of the brain, of the, the, the forms of the, how do you say, the stripes in the zebras and many things like that come from those equations, are the, the solutions for these equations. So we found uh, that there is a, uh, 
when you when you make graphs with those equations, you can explain all the patterns that you see in fruiting bodies of polypores of guild. Uh, you can reproduce anything with those no equations. Way. Yeah, and the thing is, they they have parameters, the equations, and with very small, very small changes in the diffusion rate, in the size of a molecule, in the viscosity of a protein, a very small change in those things can change the outcome of the equation. So you get from a gilt mushroom to a polypore very fast, changing some of those things. So this is something we published that, uh, last year, I think, and this is really interesting because it also explains fast changes. And this is why we don't think that, that you have to explain everything with long adapt adaptive processes. And something similar might happen in, in gastroid or truffle fungi. So we're talking about an underlying mathematical code of biology. It's there. We have found it. The key... The key. Like Alan Turing has found how to predict the morphologies of mushrooms, the stripes on zebras, down to a mathematical equation that is absolutely fascinating. And I think, you know, anyone who has looked at the underside, the polypore underside, especially under a microscope of a mushroom, is just amazed at the geometry present there. Of course, there's a mathematical formula for it, but that's it's hard to believe that it's that structured and that well defined and i just wonder what that could lead to in the future how what kind of predictive outcomes can we have on uh biology that's that's absolutely fascinating how did you guys figure out that worked who decided to to test that well i was i was i was so in love with the the, the figure of alan turing that, that i was reading his papers and the equations were so complicated, I tried to deduce them, to solve them, and it was impossible. So I downloaded a simulator, kernel simulator, that, that finds the solutions, the graphs. And I was, it was just because during the pandemics, I was at my apartment, and it was so boring. And I thought, well, this is amazing. Those are uh, polypores, and I can see genera of mushrooms here. That was crazy. So I wrote to a specialist in Germany that works in Turing equations. He works with uh, zebra fish, with uh, the form of the of the brain, the the yeah the circumvolutions of the brain. He's a genius in mathematics, and he told me, you, "You're right. Those photos of mushrooms are Turing patterns." And we started to well to solve the solve the equations and to. Yeah, to write the paper and it's already published and it has beautiful photos, so it, it is it is cool. But the thing is, you know, Stephen Jay Gold speaks in this. Uh, there's a paper on the adaptive program. He says uh, occidental science, especially uh, England and North America, are so in love with adaptation that. In the future, it will be almost impossible to propose an explanation avoiding adaptation. So, uh, and he says, uh, biologists in the future will all only believe in adaptation. And he speaks about 
comedy, I think, uh, uh, of Voltaire, I think, an old uh, piece of a uh, theater piece. Uh, he says there, there was a, a, a doctor who said that we are adapted to use uh, glasses, uh, how do you say? Yeah, because we have the nose at the same height as the ears. And this is, this is especially thought adapted to use uh, glasses. And this is right. so That's why we evolved that way. Exactly. And he says, he says, biologists nowadays think this way. Everything must be there for a reason. And probably it is, but probably this is not the reason that we think. The present reason, our ears are there because there were the gills of the fishes many millions years ago, and now we are using them to hear. But this is not the main reason why we have we have holes in the head. And yeah, I think uh, the, th the problem is what I try to say is that we have to open our minds and uh, to those ideas to think there is not only slow adaptation pro uh, processes, but also things that can explain faster phenomena. I mean, this is absolutely brilliant work. I still can't get over that you decided to apply Turing equations to make polypore undersides and it's actually the equation. I mean, that's absolutely insane. But I love this idea because I think for a lot of people, mycology and mushrooms are an introduction to basically critiques of our current ideas of evolution, or at least our culturally relevant or our culturally prevalent ideas of evolution. Namely, in the competitive framework, a lot of people see mushrooms cooperating with other organisms or having some kind of mutualistic relationship. And they think, oh, well, it's not all competition. But I love then to take that even further to see how our interactions with these organisms stretch more and more our theories about how evolution operates, what kind of pressures are there, what are the mechanisms that encourage evolution. I mean, this is a really fascinating conversation that I think has a lot for us all to kind of take in and, and tease apart in how we view that process. I mean, like you said, it's not that you don't believe in evolution, but there is critique of our exact understanding. Or, or and, and who knows then how that spills out into our cultures and the narratives we tell about humans. I mean, this is really important stuff. Yeah, it is. And, and I think mushrooms can give us a chance of of opening of open uh, to open our minds because they uh, we, we see convergent evolution everywhere we we see mushroom species in different orders they are not related and they are difficult to tell apart when you see a a, a geastrum and an astraeus they are difficult to tell apart and they are not related so uh, there there must be something out there that uh, is not only random and it's not it's, yeah it's not only mutations random mutations and not only environmental pressure you don't get so many similar things by environmental pressure we need to find other processes and i don't want it's this is not like a, a crazy i'm not uh, those of those people that think that earth is flat it's not some conspirative theory. It's, this is science, but right. we have to open our minds to, yeah, to alternatives. That's 
great to point out that there is a, a there is an authentic exploration, authentic questions that get asked out of future discovery, and we can't become dogmatic in whatever belief system it is, right? It's far too easy to think we've discovered it all and stop taking in new information and reshaping even concepts that seem as fundamental as science or maybe the shape of the earth. Who knows? We may find something, Francisco. We may sail right to the edge of the Antarctic ring. Uh, we have to be open to that. <laughs> well, exactly. well, I am the the last question I have to ask then is just about these research trips. I mean, is this something where you need to bring a, a dog with you, a canine companion to find your specimens? Is it luck of the draw? Have you developed a secret divining rod to find your hypogea specimens? Uh, how does that work for you out in the field? Well, we don't have dogs, but we take Juliana with us. Juliana Fulci. <laughs> no. Uh, she actually, finds all the mushrooms. Uh, yeah, uh, she's amazing. And, and the, the rest of the team, too, you, if, you, if you work with uh, Matthew Smith from Florida, he has also an instinct to find things. I don't. I go where they go. And I start. <laughs> and, and, and we have strategies like we, we will get, uh, we get for, 15 minutes there and we if we don't find anything we move and this way you end up finding the locations but yeah i think there are people like juliana she has a like a like something amazing she i think she smells things uh, that i don't uh, and she finds things so going to the field with her or with matthew is or don fister too they are they are amazing and they they know how to find things and there are many things in Patagonia you you don't have to look that much uh, to find things. Well, I love that because I think that's what I do when it comes to just amateur foraging. Find someone who knows where they're going and just follow them. Uh, but that's that's really interesting to to think about how you can pick up cues and maybe have strategies like don't get stuck in one area for too long. Really, really interesting. Now, what's the future of this field, do you think? I mean, are there new technologies? Are there new tools that might help us better either find fungi or answer some of these questions? And then for you, you know, and I think we've probably mentioned them, but what are some of the burning or the big questions remaining for you when it comes to uh, studying hypogeus or even just sequestrate fungi? I mean, what are the things that you're looking to answer in the coming years? I think I'm I'm very uh, excited to to see uh, the results of many ongoing research. They are looking for for uh, the for example for the gene that that defines uh, sequestration, and this is very complex because I don't think there's only one gene. I think that the, the situation is more more complex. Like at, like I said with Turing's equations, probably there's no one mutation, and and of course we know that. In anthropology, uh, uh, scientists were looking for uh, one gene explaining violence or, or or crimes, and we don't we, we don't believe that anymore in, in humans, but we believe that in fungi. So uh, there's so much research on that, and I, I want to see what happens with that. Uh, I'm really excited about that. Uh, and also to see if things change, if we become not so uh, reductionists, if we can open our minds. But there are also things that we need. We, we need 
we need to value to understand that morphology is still interesting. People are focusing always on phylogeny. And when you see the when you see people doing their PhD research, the time allocated to phylogeny, to molecules, is so much larger than uh, morphology. And morphology is, is, is amazing. Uh, morphology has also an, a history. And uh, yeah, I think we, we, we need to, to connect with that again. But I, I don't know if that's possible. It's just what I, what I love. But who knows? When I'm thinking of, you know, what if we had that capacity like Zinger to look at a spore tip and realize there's a hole in here that's jammed. I mean, this process of studying morphology could lead to findings that maybe, for whatever reason, this is hard to imagine that our technology to identify or place organisms isn't totally refined because it feels like it is when you get to the genetic level, but just that maybe those powers of observation, that morphology can lead you to associations or something that technology might otherwise not. Uh, so I, I love that idea of, of keeping, keeping that door open. And yeah, talk about the Holy Grail. If you can find the set of genes responsible for sequestration, suddenly some of these questions that when you talk about them, I'm like, we're, I'm just comfortable with that. I'm never going to know that, but that we might. If we can locate, if we can locate those genes that that we might, uh, and you know, I have to make sure. Tell us about your work now. So we're talking about research in Patagonia, papers about hypogeus fungi, and I know that uh, you've worked, you know, at Conaset, uh, but I know now you're working at Enemy Labs. So tell us, tell us about your work uh, currently with Enemy Labs. Yeah, this is uh, uh, I, I paused my my I paused my my job in, in Argentina. Uh, I am still a curator of the of the fungarium there. Uh, I'm traveling uh, like, like next month. I will travel there, uh, but I'm focused now on producing using those ideas on, on how tissues develop, on how morphology works. Uh, we are producing uh, edible mycelium to produce something similar to meat. And I had uh, there were uh, yeah some friends came uh, uh, when I, when we were in Argentina with the idea of making something uh, that can reach society. They were really concerned with with the the, the problems we are uh, we have with uh, meat production. Meat production is terrible for the environment, you know. And they said, well, we we. We want to find a solution for that, and maybe you can help us. So we started to produce uh, meat analogs using mycelium, and we wanted to produce something without adding anything. We didn't want to 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 destroy mycelium and add methylcellulose or things like that. So we started producing matrices by solid state fermentation, and we started to talk with investors, and they fell in love with the idea and. Yeah, they started financing the the whole project, and now we built we made a company here in in the Basque country in in, in northern Spain. And I, the good thing is, like when I when I used to talk about my my ideas on, on evolution, sometimes uh, it is difficult to reach people because yeah, some people that don't, don't 
yeah, they don't like that or they don't think the same. But when you start producing meat analogs, people fall in love with you and they call you from TV or from newspapers. But the, the important thing is to try to do something that can help us uh yeah for example taking care of the nature and yeah we are getting money to do that and we have good results we we will start selling our hamburgers next year and they are delicious so yeah this is what i what we are doing here i have a lab in in bilbao which is a beautiful city and we are with very cool people so i'm really happy here i i love everything about that and as someone who's a vegan myself I've grown very mistrustful of overly processed meat analogs of uh, the classic motif, M-O-T-I-F, I believe a Bill Gates owned company growing Petri dish, animal cells, not really into that. So the rise of mycelium meat has got, it's close to my heart, especially ones that are doing the least processing possible, not necessarily doing irradiation to cause expression of certain genes, you know, in bioreactors or something. I, I just think this presents a future that, yes, if you're going to select away from animal products, it's nice to go into something that isn't like worse for the environment exactly. in some ways. So, yeah, it is. Oh, God, I, I love to hear about that. And I know people listening and we've done episodes with uh, different mycelium meat companies. I would love to maybe have you and the team on just about that product when you're ready. Yeah. Uh, and I think at this point, there can't be too many folks in that quote unquote industry. I think it's such a new technology in order to kind of get people comfortable with it and understanding it, kind of the more people there are in helping uplift this idea, the the better it is for everybody. And also really that's how we're gonna have a faster shift toward these kind of more sustainable alternatives. Uh, so I just love hearing that. When you said the name of the company, for some reason, it didn't click. That's what you're doing. So I, I love that's what you're doing there in Basque. And that's on a short list. I mean, it's actually <laughs> on a long list of places we want to visit. But yeah, Basque country is legendary. So a great place to do your work. It is amazing. Basque people are, are amazing. And they they have they are so interested in, in, in help scientists to build companies. They love that for some reason, and they are helping us with many things. Uh, but they are also interested interested in the environment, and this is important because mm. in other places it is difficult to find funding for for things in this direction. And I'm happy, yeah, to to yeah, because I found that place, I found the right people. But also, what I said at the beginning uh, when I was working in in enzymes during my PhD. I noticed that we were working always with the same species. And now I right. see biotechnologists, they call me every day, and they want to, to make Fusarium, for example, do something or some other thing or change something. And I always say there are so many species. And if you see the descriptions of the species, uh, you see so many different kinds of hyphae or combinations, and when you see to, when you go to the forest and you touch the fruiting bodies, they are hard as wood, or they are uh, gelatinous, or they are there are so many different things. So we need to be open to those species. Of course, we need edible species, but if people eat auricularia. Uh, 
yeah, in, in, in all around the world for many hundreds of years, this is safe and the textures are amazing. We need to culture that and see how we reproduce these, these textures. And we don't need to always work with Fusarium and see how we change that because we will end up editing genes. And the nature has been working on that for millions of years to provide us with this huge selection so we can use that. I love that. Why, why focus on editing genes when nature has already been a lab doing that for millions of years? Just exactly. you have to find the right one. And yeah, I think we're very much in this golden age of fungal bioprospecting. I mean, already you could argue the past 100, to, I mean, from, from the earliest human civilizations, we've been cultivating or domesticating different fungal species to make food and advanced products and fermentation. But but now that we have an understanding of some of these other novel properties and we're better able to identify or we are entering into a, you know, a new golden age of bioprospecting where we can really start identifying these hundreds of thousands to millions of species. And once we get ideas of what the markers mean, suddenly we don't have to name everything to figure out will it be useful if we can start to figure out what are markers about edibility or structure or durability uh, it's that that to me is a, a fascinating project moving you know moving into the future and yeah i guess for all this stuff we've talked about I and mean, we've covered so many like mind-blowing topics where can people find out more about you dr kuhar um is there is there a website or a central page or what's the best way to, to find your work? Well, I think if they look for me, since my surname is not so common, it is easy to find me. But there is also my uh, Instagram, Fran Fungi. I also have this uh, uh, foundation in Argentina where we work with many colleagues there, Hongos uh, de Argentina, Argentinian Fungi. It is very easy to find me there. Inomi Labs also has a web page with the contact. It's, it's easy to find me. Uh, I'm happy that I have a, a, a weird surname, so it is not so common. You can find me easily. That's very true. If you search Francisco Kuhar, there's one person that comes up. And if you throw the word mycology in there, there's definitely yeah. only one name only me. that comes yeah. back. So we'll post all the links, though, to Inomi, uh, any groups you work with in Argentina, uh, what Argentina, whether it's Conocet, or the fungi of Argentina. Uh, so I do highly encourage people to go and read your work. And maybe it's just a research gate uh, web search for Francisco Kuhar. There's loads of information. And if you're someone who uh, can read Spanish, man, that unlocks whole new levels of the research as well. I had someone translating abstracts for me. Uh, but yes, if you could read Spanish, there's so much more there to, to to find and learn about. Well, then I'll wrap things up with the three questions I like to ask all of my guests. And the first one uh, is one, always one of the most interesting, and that is what is a mushroom or fungus that you love and why? And this could be, you love to eat it, look at it, smell it, you know, and it does not have to be a favorite. It could be one you just popped into your head right now, but a mushroom or fungus that you love and why? I really love the genus Geastrum. Uh, I, I find it amazing and I want to, to, to really work on a, at some point, maybe when I'm old, to really find out the process of, of opening like a star. I find it uh, incredible. It's, they, are, they are crazy. Yeah. That's one of the things that people who are new to mushrooms 
always fall in love with is the earth stars i mean that whole genera uh, that whole genus i think is, is a special one so that's a great choice and then you know this relationship you've developed with all these different species of fungi over the years what has your relationship with queendom or kingdom fungi given to you and that could be just lessons you've learned from different organisms you've worked with or broad understandings given all of your research into this. And I think we've covered some of it already when we talk about evolution and things like that. But as best you can kind of summarize or put into words, what has this whole relationship with these other organisms uh, given to you? Well, I think that there are many things like we said, for example, we can achieve the, the same results by different ways, this is something you learn from fungal evolution. And there is not only one way. I found that amazing. Uh, the ways of interacting also, how they can build different things just by combining with other living organisms. I find it incredible. And that you don't have to be complicated to make important things. Because, hmm. of course, we, we think of us humans of, of, uh, like organisms with so many different cell types uh, or tissues and fungi don't have that they are really simple in in the, maybe they have in one fungal species they have six types of cells no more than that and this is and they can do so many things they can develop so many uh, structures structures and processes so this is one thing I've learned too. And there is also one thing that I'm thinking of uh, that we are, we think uh, of, we think like humans all the time and we think that we are really important. For example, we are working with the flavors in Inomi. We are uh, discussing for discussing because they produce very interesting bitter flavors, mushrooms. And we were reading uh, about, of course, I combine everything with evolution because it's not only being in the kitchen, uh, kitchen and, and trying things. I want to see why that happens. And again, uh, you see uh, papers talking on adaptation and they say if they are bitter, if they, it's because they want, they want to avoid uh, animal consumption. And I think when you see uh, the mycelium, within the soil, they interact with thousands of species of microorganisms and bacteria and small animals and the roots of plants. And this is 99% of the life of a, of a fungal species. And we think that they are adapting to us, animals, big animals, producing bitter things against us. This is forgetting 99,9% of the things that a, a fungal species adapt to or, or fight against or associate with. And so they are teaching us that we need to stop thinking of us as something so important. <laughs> I mean, just giving us a little perspective, maybe humbling us a little bit and making us understand that we are not the only force big macroscopic mammals are not the only uh force with agency uh, in our various ecologies yeah that's i i think that's an amazing way of putting it an amazing set of examples uh, and i know that for a lot of people 
interacting with mushrooms and just learning about them and their lifestyles leads you to some of those broader perspectives, kind of kick you out of your anthropocentrism a little bit. Uh, and then another big, broad question, I'm trying to decide. I, I always ask this question and I, I've been starting to switch it up a little bit and asking people something different because when I ask about you know, how do you envision society as being better as we work with mushrooms? You know, we've kind of talked about it. Um, so I guess to do something slightly different, hearing about your broad body of work, questions you've looked at, and then how these organisms have impacted you. I mean, what do you think is kind of a, a call to action or what you would push people to do, uh, listeners to this show, something that we could that we could do to either deepen our relationship with fungal organisms uh, in a way that benefits ourself and the planet. Yeah, yeah, it's difficult. Is to, there is there any call to action like that? Uh, it's difficult to to give an answer uh, without uh, uh, sounding like miscongeniality. Uh, but uh, it's like uh, I think that my humble idea would be from what I'm seeing now in biotechnology is. There is this huge gap between uh, basic science and applied science, and it is becoming more, uh, more. It is, it is becoming deeper. So, if we we can make biotechnology without forgetting our place and the species and the diversity of species of the place we we live and when we try to save the world or change something, and we end up uh, copying an idea of something from another continent and asking for strains, for to use the same strain to save the world, maybe the solution is to keep learning on diversity and to merge diversity, the study of diversity, the study of evolution. We can study the evolution of fungal uh, forms to make future food. It's not that we need to forget about uh, the, those huge research uh, uh, books or, or papers from the past. We need to use that because we have so much information from, the, from local people, not only about mushrooms, about plants, animals, and we, we can stop buying ideas from other countries, from other continents, because we have a lot of information everywhere, all around the world, and we can use that. That would be my my message. I love that. We don't have to copy what someone is doing halfway across the world. There are knowledge systems, you know, indigenous or otherwise, you know, knowledge systems right where you are that probably have the potential to answer the questions or the thing you're trying to do. Glad I asked that question. I, I love that answer. Uh, well, Francisco, Dr. Kuhar, thank you so much for coming on the show, giving us such thoughtful answers, laying out brilliant insights, like under, un, like discovering the mathematics of biological expression in your, you know, in your free time. Uh, it's really been such a pleasure to be able to speak with you, uh, and I'm really grateful you made the time. Thank you for coming on the show. No, thank you very much. It is. It, it was great. I, I was uh, always. Uh, seeing you in, in Instagram and uh, yeah, I, I'm so happy that, that I have the chance to, to share all the, all, all the things we, we do. So thank you very much.